Alisher Usmanov is a Russian billionaire with ties to Vladimir Putin, and we learned on Thursday morning that one of his most prized possessions, a $600 million yacht, 512 feet, 1,600 tons, two helicopter pads, a sauna, a beauty salon, a gym, and a thousand different sofa cushions, uh, according to Forbes, was seized by German authorities. One of the first major yachts taken in a widening sting in an attempt to go after Vladimir Putin's internet work. From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm David Betancourt, and for Martine Powers, it's Thursday, March third. Today, the plans to confiscate yachts, jets, and luxury apartments from the Russian elites closest to Putin. Plus, why is there no baseball being played right now? Okay, Jeff. So, give me the news here. What is the Biden administration preparing to do with regard to sanctions and Russian oligarchs? So far, as the U.S. has tried to mount an economic response to the Russian military invasion of Ukraine, Jeff Stein is a White House economics reporter for the Post. We've seen largely measures that are targeted at the Russian economy overall. The most dramatic of which was sanctions on the central bank, the Kremlin, that have really、uh, crippled the Russian economy and caused the ruble to plunge. While those economy-wide measures are proceeding, however, the U.S. and, and the White House are looking at sort of specific targeted strikes, economic strikes, on the allies, the financial elite of Vladimir Putin. We are looking at about two dozen、uh, Russian oligarchs that have been sanctioned just a couple days ago by the European Union. That the U.S. is optimistic, if their foreign assets are frozen, could deliver a serious blow to Putin allies and therefore to Putin himself. So, what do personal sanctions look like? The way sanctions tend to work in the U.S. is that the Treasury Department, a branch of the Treasury called OFAC, will put you on a designated list, and if you are on that list, it means that your assets are frozen. This is different than asset seizure, which is possible if the government has evidence that you've committed a crime and it can take your possessions. In this case, we're looking primarily at this point at. Frozen assets that the U.S. government could undertake once they put people on that sanctions list, and that is really、um, potentially crippling to these oligarchs because they have assets all over the world, and they've decided to store a lot of the money they've made abroad because that's safer in some respects than keeping them in in Russia. But that creates this vulnerability that the U.S. is trying to exploit. So, Jeff, tell me about this strategy.、Uh, how does it work in combination with all the other financial measures the United States and other countries have taken? It's important to note, you know, that many innocent Russians, many people who have nothing, who want nothing to do with the war, are going to get hurt by the central bank sanctions, by the other changes to imports that the U.S. is considering, but. This strategy is really designed to target a very small elite. Some people might say that that could, you know, spill over into hurting, you know, the companies that these people own. That's one of the the key difficulties here. How do you make sure that some of the commodities and parts of the supply chain that the U.S. is trying to protect do not get affected by the sanctions of the billionaires that they're trying to hurt? So, who all are they considering sanctions against? So far, I can report, based on sourcing close to to the matter, that Alisher Usmanov,、um, I mentioned that his yacht was seized by German authorities this week. 
he is being considered for sanctions. Usmanov has denied any support, undue support for the Kremlin. Has denounced the charges um, and said that that they're totally unfair. That he's, um, I think the quote was, false and defamatory allegations, damaging my honor, my dignity, and my business reputation. Is what he said at the EU sanctions. The U.S. is considering similar sanctions. This guy is phenomenally wealthy. His net worth is estimated to be about fifteen billion dollars, and he owns um, sort of an iron and steel mining conglomerate. It's worth really stressing here that Russia, even more than the U.S. and even more than Europe, is a highly unequal society where billionaires control, according to some estimates, roughly 30% of the nation's wealth. That's more than twice the amount in countries like Germany and the U.S. And we have some estimates that as much financial wealth is stored by the Russian billionaires abroad as the entire Russian population has in Russia itself. So we're talking about a lot of money here and the potential to go after some very close friends of Vladimir Putin. But why would that even work? How are these sanctions on other people going to affect Putin? There's been a lot of speculation and I think legitimate questions about how effective this will be at persuading Putin. There was a, a great story in the Financial Times the other day that was talking about how in the past, Putin really seemed controlled and responsive to the oligarchs that they had sort of brought him to power, especially in his initial rise, and that he owed them. But what this Financial Times article was questioning and that some people I've talked to, sort of Russia experts in the U.S. have said, is that it's not really clear that that's true anymore. It seems like Putin's control over the oligarchs has become almost absolute and that they are more responsive to him at this point than he is to them. And so the theory here is twofold, right? One is that these sanctions will hurt people who deserve to be hurt because they are supportive of the Putin regime. That seems potentially clear. The second question about whether this will actually persuade Putin to think differently or act differently seems uh, much harder to to suss out. The hope is that this is sort of a political economy measure that if you lose the support of the powerful oligarchs, Putin himself will lose power. But you know, given the you know, the stories we're hearing about martial law and given the odds that this is um, really being driven by him personally and what we've seen about how he controls his cabinet, it seems very possible that this is not actually going to be an effective strategy. It is worth noting that a lot of these people, I mean, not only are they rich people in Russia who are supporters of the Kremlin, but a lot of them go back with Putin for decades. Uh, Igor Shechin, um, one of the people on the EU sanction list who I, I imagine, I don't have any information about this, but I imagine will likely be looked at by the U.S. His connections with Putin date to the 1990s. He was the deputy head of Putin's administration for a number of years and their friends. So, you know, those kinds of connections are what the U.S. is going to be trying to be targeting. Some of the billionaires have already come out and said, we're against the war, please don't sanction us. Um, the U.S. has often ignored those comments, but it really uh, is anyone's guess the extent to which this will shift policy in the Kremlin. Has something like this been done before? leveraging sanctions against a specific individual? And when these things happen, do the people sanctioning get the results they want? You know, one of the uh, sanctions experts I spoke to, Adam Smith, who was a former Obama administration official, made the point to me that sometimes the sanctions have the opposite of the intended effect, right? You think that what you're doing is deterring, uh, you know, these, these oligarchs from supporting Putin. But in some ways, if they make the U.S. seem like the bad guy, they could actually drive potential sources of defection into Putin's arms by giving them a reason to hate the U.S. or to feel like the U.S. and its allies are treating them unfairly. You know, we, we will have to see. I mean, there are a lot of um, humanitarian sanctions that have had 
devastating impacts in other countries in different periods of time. And there are legitimate questions about the extent to which the U.S. sanctions on Russia will do that. We've seen um, reports of, you know, in the 90s, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of civilians were killed by the U.S. sanctions on Saddam Hussein before the invasion. We are seeing extremely dangerous uh, situation in Afghanistan where sanctions have been leading to um, a likely humanitarian crisis. The sanctions on the oligarchs and the freezing of their overseas assets does appear to be a different category. It's going after these rich guys with tons of assets, tons of liquidity, even in Russia, that they they will be okay. And so the humanitarian costs of these particular sanctions maybe not so great, but the overall U.S. strategy to cripple the Russian economy, you know, could do a lot of damage on a lot of innocent people. Obviously, the need to do so based on the uh, invasion of Ukraine and the need to strike back at Russia may overpower that. Um, but no doubt that this is a, a real weapon. The economic sanctions that the U.S. you know, it's, it's an unbelievably powerful tool that I think a lot of Americans don't understand about how, sort of, with the snap of a finger, the U.S. can cripple um, a foreign country's economy and devastate uh, certain individuals for for their ties. And we're seeing that that weapon be deployed even as the U.S. resists calls for an fly zone and other sort of more military-based interventions. What sort of hurdles could the United States and other countries face in putting up these sanctions? One, one big question that hangs over these sanctions is, where are these guys' assets? And it seems like something that you would have a good handle on, but due to the current structure of U.S. law, we have the ability right now for tons of people to hide assets and to essentially keep their finances and their assets hidden from public view. And there's a lot of talk in Congress right now. Senator Ron Wyden has a bill to change disclosure rules among private equity and hedge funds, uh, venture capital firms to force them to say where their sources of money are. But in a lot of instances, we, we really just don't know where these guys have their money. And, and to that end, actually, it's worth stressing, the Department of Justice announced yesterday the formation of a major new task force called a Task Force Klepto Capture. It's going to be led by sort of the uh, alphabet soup of different law enforcement agencies, the IRS, Secret Service, DHS, are going to be launching a, a huge effort aimed at trying to track down um, where these guys' assets are. And also, if there's anything illegal that they can point to, it might be in part difficult to find the legal criminal action if, um, you know, I don't think the Russians are going to be cooperating with those inquiries anytime soon. But it's definitely a major effort to try to overcome that hurdle, which is that current U.S. law allows for tons of shell corporations and games with people's financial assets that make it really hard to understand where, where the money is kept. What's next in this story and what will you be watching out for? I'm very interested to see sort of not only the names of the people they sanction, do they go after people with political influence? Does it turn out that the campaign finance side of what the Russian oligarchs are up to is much greater than we were aware of? I think that will be interesting, but I also think whether it's effective at freezing the assets, whether that leads to change in Moscow, it, it seems like, I mean, I've been drawn to the story a little bit just because it seems so James Bond, so uh, spy versus spy kind of thing where you have these billionaires, you know, there's been some reports of them on yachts trying to escape, trying to evade detection. And this international hunt is, is such an interesting story to watch. And I'm sure we're going to see some, some interesting examples come out um, in the next few days. Jeff, thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. Jeff Stein is a White House economic reporter for The Post. 
Rennie Svernovsky produced this story. After we recorded this conversation on Thursday afternoon, the White House announced new sanctions on Russian elites. The State Department is imposing visa restrictions on 19 Russian oligarchs and their family members and associates. The Biden administration is also imposing sanctions on more than a dozen Russian elites and their family members, including Dmitry Peskov, Putin's press secretary. After the break, why Major League Baseball has canceled part of its regular season games. We'll be right back. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To say I'm a baseball fan is an understatement. I've looked forward to baseball season my entire life. I grew up watching baseball with my great-grandparents in Washington, D.C. My great-grandmother was a huge Atlanta baseball fan. I myself am half Puerto Rican. In the Caribbean, baseball is a religious experience. So when Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred announced this earlier this week... I had hoped against hope that I would not have to have this particular press conference in which I am going to cancel some regular season games. We worked hard to avoid an outcome. Like every other baseball fan, I was not happy. Major League Baseball has canceled at least the first two series or roughly 90 games this season because of a labor dispute between the players' union and team owners. The clubs and our owners fully understand just how important it is to our millions of fans that we get the game on the field as soon as possible. But it was the team owners, not the players, who called this lockout because they couldn't agree on a collective bargaining agreement. Exactly right. When the deal expired in December, the owners implemented a lockout. They said it was to create urgency in the negotiating process. I think really it was more to make sure that the players weren't the ones to strike instead. That's Chelsea James. She covers baseball for The Post. Uh, It means that all free agent signings, all of the off-season transactions you usually see froze in place, and that players can't go back to their facilities until it is over. And it may not be over for a while. Chelsea says negotiations are continuing today in New York, but the season is still in jeopardy. For the everyman who may not be a dedicated fan stressing over shifts and on-base percentage, what is happening right now with baseball? So every five years, the players union and the owners have to come to a collective bargaining agreement like you'd see anywhere else in labor across the country. And for the last few collective bargaining agreements, the players felt like the owners rigged the system a little bit so that they were going to get a greater share of the pie. And now the players are saying, we want to get that share back to where it should be. Um, Revenues have increased dramatically over recent years. The players feel they're not getting their fair share. And so they're fighting over ways to, you know, rearrange that money and and get the players more of it. Given the current situation, what does this mean for opening day? Opening day has somewhat almost officially been postponed from March 31st 
Major League Baseball announced that two days ago that they're going to cancel the first two series of the regular season, which will mean about 90 total games between all the teams. The players have not necessarily accepted that that is true and the union wants to negotiate the schedule. But I think it's fairly safe to say at this point that opening day will not go on March 31st as scheduled. Have we seen something like this before play out between ownership and the players? We have. In the 70s and 80s, this was fairly common. You know, every almost every time they had to negotiate a deal, somebody was locked out, somebody was striking. And, you know, in 1994, uh, the players staged a strike that cost the World Series. It, it ended the season midway through. Um, and it's sort of looked upon as one of the, the dark times in Major League Baseball history. They got back on the field by 1995, but there were fewer fans. The TV ratings were lower. Everything sort of had to reset and they had to win back all the fans who were confused as to why people that are much richer than them uh, were were holding baseball back because of money. So it's not unprecedented, but over the last few years, they've been able to come to deals without this kind of labor strife and, and without disrupting the schedule. So this is the first time, you know, really in a generation that we've seen this kind of labor unrest cost regular season games. I remember the Montreal Expos were very good that year that they struck. And who knows, had they won the World Series that year, maybe they'd still be in Canada and not here in Washington. It's true. The speculation about that year and what would have happened, you know, runs wild. And, um, you know, I think it was a shock that year that there was no baseball. I think this year it's even more demoralizing because, you know, 2020 was a shortened season too because of COVID. So uh, it's been a rough few years and I'll be interested to see how baseball can bounce back, if at all, if they miss a lot of games this year too. Can baseball afford, you know, they have a built-in viewership, a built-in fandom. Most would say it's an older fan base, uh, not as young as it used to be. Given the popularity with young people of other sports like the NFL and NBA, is this a game that they can really afford to play? Are they thinking about their long-term future or are they just thinking about the here and now? You know, I think they certainly are not thinking about the long-term future in the way they believe they are. I think they're looking for the long-term future in terms of their interests, whether that's the players making sure that their futures are secure or the owners making sure their futures go the way they want them to financially. But if anyone stepped back and and really truly cared about the fans, uh, we wouldn't be here because the the harm to the game is so substantial. And, you know, the people who aren't in the room, the people who spend money and don't get it from the game or the people who, who rely on the game for their livelihoods, stadium workers, things like this, you know, they're the ones who are hurt most by this. And, you know, I think for for people who aren't in the players' shoes or particularly the owners' shoes, it's it's really hard to understand why they would go this far when you look at the money they're making and you say, you know, things are going pretty well for them. Is there any point in the history of this sport that we can look at to possibly guess how long this lockout will last? You know, the 1994 strike went on a long time. It cost half of a regular season and, you know, it took until spring training of the next year to get everybody back. I think that the equation has changed dramatically now because of social media, because of the sort of immediate pressure that is applied to either side at any given moment. And I would suspect that this goes, you know, shorter than that, certainly. You know, we also have a sense that the TV revenue involved here is, is more substantial and more important to owners than ever before. And at some point, if you start missing games, those TV contracts aren't going to be paying you out in the same way. So I don't think we'll see something the length of the 1994 strike that went on months and, you know, bridge seasons. But it's hard to know. Every day lost now is a day that costs everybody involved huge sums of money. And I'm hoping that that creates an urgency to avoid more games getting canceled. Is there one key factor in this negotiating, one thing over everything else that is a true point of contention. For example, you hear about the luxury tax. Now, baseball doesn't have a salary cap, but they're big spenders like the Yankees and the Dodgers who give out these huge exorbitant contracts. 
when they spend the type of money they do on their payrolls, they're they're taxed for it. And in essence, supposedly to protect the middle market teams that aren't big spenders. Is that has that been a point of contention, the luxury tax? Yeah, that's that's always the number. Um, I think that's the number both sides look at to determine how well the negotiation went for them. And, you know, I don't think that's necessarily the right measure, but it's the one they look at. And, you know, for people who are less familiar with the system, the NFL has a salary cap. Every team can only spend the same amount. And that's one way that they kind of enforce parity in their league. But in baseball, the players union has over the decades been so powerful. And their main goal has been to avoid a salary cap. The idea being that if owners are not restricted in what they can spend, they will spend more on players. And so what everyone kind of devised instead was a threshold at which if a team spends more on salary than, say, $210 million, which is where the number was in 2021, they will be taxed for their overages. And, you know, these tax rates are not prohibitive. I think it was 20% in 2021 if you go over the first time. So say you go over by $2 million, you're paying 20% of $2 million, which, you know, drops in a bucket. But... You know, the owners, I think, by and large, argue that those those numbers should resemble a salary cap more, that the threshold should be low, the tax rate should be high so that it creates parity. And the players say, you know, if you really want to suppress our salaries, that's the best way to do it. So we want that number to be higher. We want you to be able to spend more. I think both of them look at that number as an indication of, you know, kind of who has the power in the game. And so it continues to be a sticking point. It was a sticking point when the sides broke off negotiations Tuesday. And, you know, I think, Finding middle ground there is is going to be the last thing that happens before this deal gets done, if it does. I myself am a diehard baseball fan, generational baseball fan. Um, for fans like myself and those of us who, you know, there are people who buy subscription packages and stay up on the East Coast until 1 and 2 in the morning watching West Coast baseball. Uh, this is a very select and dedicated fan base. But as this goes on, is anyone on either side thinking that they might be alienating that person and that they may decide, you know, well, maybe I should just do something else with my money? I think they think that's not going to happen. And I think they underestimate the angst and the frustration that exists out there. Unfortunately, I think in the COVID era, we all have a little bit of perspective about what's important and what's not. And, and everybody's a little more frustrated with people that sort of aren't protecting the institutions that we all treasure. Even the most diehard baseball fans that that I've talked to, that I've encountered, no one's sitting here saying, oh, you know, the players have a right to do this. The owners have a right to do this. Everyone's just saying, guys, like everyone in this world has bigger fish to fry right now. Like, just give us baseball. We're all going to be fine. And if they cared a lot about the fans, we wouldn't be here because you'd give a little so that, that everyone else can, you know, enjoy the game. And maybe they still will. Maybe we won't miss much of the season. But it's pretty clear to me, at least, that anything they say about the fans, the players, the owners, whatever anyone says, you know, it's, it's fairly disingenuous because their self-interest has won out. And I think there are people who can relate to that, who can say, sure, get the best deal you want. But I don't know that that understanding and empathy will last forever. Chelsea, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Chelsea Janes covers baseball for The Post. This story was produced by Alexis Diao. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernovsky and Sean Carter. It was edited by Maggie Penman. I'm David Betancourt. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. 
The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.